Today on the 624, we talk about Memorial Day. We talk about the naturalistic trap and Noah's Ark. Let's get started. Welcome to the 624, the weekly podcast of Central Texas Creation Ministries. Taking a stand on God's word and trusting it from the very first verse. Join us as we look at creation and the Bible to understand the world around us. Well, welcome to The 624. My name is Dave Napier. I am the host of the podcast and the founder of Central Texas Creation Ministries and the Central Texas Creation Conference. And uh, I am glad that you're here hanging out with me today on The 624, where even the name tells you that God created in six literal 24-hour days. Now, I hope you guys had a good weekend. You know that I had a good weekend. I always have a good weekend. Uh, I worked on a photography project, and I didn't get that far, actually, to not lie to you. I'm actually taking pictures of my dinosaurs. That's probably not what most people say they did on the weekend. I'm trying to take pictures (laughs) of my dinosaurs because uh, over the years, I have acquired dinosaurs. Wait, I didn't steal them or anything. That sounded weird. But I have actually had dinosaurs given to me by friends, things like this. And so I actually have a collection, a small collection, of large dinosaurs. I say large. They're probably, what, a foot foot or two high. But the idea is this. I do a dinosaur talk, and I do a dinosaur section in the new DVD that I'm working on. Uh, It just doesn't take millions of years. In that DVD, one of the costs of a DVD is licensing fees. In other words, every image that you use, you have to pay somebody for because they want to make money on the image that they created or the photo that they took, uh, which, of course, this is America, this is you know capitalism, that sort of thing. So uh, not arguing about that. But that is one of the costs that you incur when doing a DVD. And so a lot of people don't use um, a lot of colorful images and stuff because it just adds to the cost. Well, that's just not acceptable to me. I have to use images. This is creation. I want people to see creation, not just hear about creation. And so that's why I always encourage you to come see one of my talks or go online to centraltexascreation.com and you can see uh, videos from our first conference. Uh, So I'm taking pictures of my dinosaurs because I want to, uh, number one, so I don't have to pay licensing fees because they're very expensive. The dinosaur pictures that I use are actually kind of expensive to use. Uh, And the other reason is because I have these dinosaurs, and I normally will take them with me to talks, put them out on a display table or out on a book table, that sort of thing, and so people can see them and then see them in the presentation, and uh, I'm going to name them and all this kind of stuff. So it'll just be kind of fun, and then also I don't have to worry about paying hundreds and hundreds of dollars in licensing fees. Um, Actually, I've had thoughts that I'd love to make a children's book about it, too. I've always wanted to make a children's book about dinosaurs using a story about a dinosaur that goes through this you know, journey or something like that. So maybe I'll use my dinosaurs for a children's book. You never know. So anyway, uh, I hope you had a great weekend. Obviously, I did. I, I, I love dinosaurs. And so, of course, I had a good weekend. Uh, so this is actually the Memorial Day episode because we are celebrating Memorial Day or we celebrated more, more, 
Ooh, I can't even say it now. We celebrated Memorial Day. And uh, so I, I want to encourage you. Did you have anybody, do you have anybody who's died in military service? Not everybody does. You might have somebody, you might not. Maybe a great-grandfather, a grandfather, somebody like that. It may even be a brother or something or a son. Uh, I want to encourage you that throughout this week, um, we get so caught up in Memorial Day on, hey, we're off, hey, let's go have a barbecue, hey, let's do this, that we really don't think about Memorial Day all that much. And so I would love for you to just be encouraged to call people that you know that have a loved one that has died in military service, because obviously that's what Memorial Day is all about. I'd love for you to email them or text them. You know, John 15, 12 says this, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. And now it goes on in uh, verse 14. He says, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. So he's talking about uh, what he did for us, that he laid down his life for us, for our sins. But you think about it. Jesus said that we should love one another the way he loved us. And while I can't know each person's heart or mind, putting your life on the line so that others can live free or so that others can simply live in some cases that's love. And so we want to honor those people. We want to uh, make sure that uh, families know that we appreciate the sacrifice. You know, each of these people gave their life so that we can experience the freedom that we enjoy. We have those freedoms. We need to be thanking them for our freedom of speech, for our freedom of religion, and all religions, that is, for our freedom of religion, our personal rights that a lot of people in many other countries do not have. You know, God used imperfect men to think up and fight for and set up the country that we live in right now, if you're in the United States. If you're in another country, not so much. Uh, although that's probably true as well. But he provided for us long before we were ever born. And on a daily basis, he uses these men and women to maintain these freedoms and to protect us from what others are forced to go through. Now, this includes our police, our local, state, and, and federal government, our military, people that we will never meet, people that we don't know about, but God knows them. And he uses them. So I want to challenge you to take some time to pray for all those people and their families who laid down their life so that we could live. And not just that, let's make sure that their sacrifice isn't wasted. So live your life to the fullest. Don't just exist, but thrive. Now, I don't mean by that that you need to go out and make lots of money, drive a fancy car. What I mean by that is spiritually Find your purpose in Christ and go for it. You know, God doesn't just have a general purpose for your life. He has specific plans for you. It may be really simple as, you know, teaching Sunday school and helping kids to grow in Christ. It could be something bigger, a ministry. It could be something so big it takes years to do and it takes lots of people to help you out. But whatever that is, embrace it and live it out. That's how we not only honor God, but how we also honor the sacrifices of others that they've made for us. 
Be sure that you're praying for those who have lost a loved one in defense of our country and in defense of our freedom. Well, today we are going to be talking about Noah's Ark. Now, we're going to be going into a little more detail about Noah's Ark in on October 12th at the Central Texas Creation Conference. I'll actually be doing a talk on the global flood with including uh, kind of a little bit of the feasibility of Noah's Ark. Now, tickets are going to go on sale for that August 1st, so you don't want to miss out on that. But today we're going to start a conversation a little bit uh, on Noah's Ark and what can we know about Noah's Ark uh, when we really think about it, is it feasible, that sort of thing. We're going to touch a little bit on that over the next one, two, or three podcasts. I'm not exactly sure how many. But before we get started on that, I want to address a little bit of a danger. Because when you're dealing with creation versus evolution, you can fall into what I call the naturalistic trap. Now, I see this especially with astronomy and the speed of light. I mean, when we look at astronomy... The question is, how can you see the light from a star that is 8 million light years away? Now, a light year, of course, is a unit of measure that is the distance that light can travel in one year. So that means it would take 8 million years to see the light from a star that is 8 million light years away. Now, if that's true, if it would take 8 million years to see the light that we're already seeing right now, then the Earth can't be just 6,000 years old. Now, this has convinced many Christians to be old earth creationists and many to be evolutionists. Of course, the problem is that evolutionists, there's actually a couple of things. Uh, the first one is that evolutionists have the same type of problem that we have. They have they, a kind of speed of light problem. Uh, when, they can, when they consider the CMB, the cosmic microwave background, they discovered that. And it's basically the it's a a measurement of radiation that we find spread all over the universe. It is it's like it's evenly spread throughout the universe. Now they've decided that this must be the remnant of the Big Bang. This is from the origin of the universe. This is the Big Bang. It's the remnant of it, and it's spread all throughout the universe. Unfortunately, based on the size of the universe. If the Big Bang started as a singularity in one point in space, there has not been enough time for this radiation to have spread all throughout the universe. It just couldn't happen in 13.8 billion years. So this tells us that something must have been different in the beginning than it is now. So what's my point? My point is that while it's a good thing for scientists to work on this problem, uh, definitely we should. We want to know more about the speed of light. We actually only know the two-way speed of light. Uh, in other words, sending it out, it reflecting, and coming back to us. We know the two-way speed of light. What's the one-way speed of light? Uh, the other question is, how is the speed of light affected once you get out of our, the Earth's gravity? Uh, once you get out of the solar system, once you get out of the galaxy, what's the speed of light? We don't know all these things, and so there's lots more that we need to investigate and understand. My point is this. It is a good thing for us to be thinking about this, to be experimenting, for scientists to be working on this problem. But we can get so caught up in having a naturalistic answer for this that we lose the divinity of God. In other words, if we don't have a naturalistic answer, 
then we wind up saying, well, this can't be right then. Well, well, this probably didn't happen. It's a real problem. We lose the divinity of God. We have to be careful to not say something couldn't happen unless it was a perfectly materialistic explanation. I mean, God is the one who raised Jesus from the dead. God's the one who parted the Red Sea. He spoke and things leapt into existence. So why is this a sticking point? Why is it that we have to have a naturalistic explanation for the speed of light? It doesn't make sense. And we can get in the same situation with Noah's Ark. So many people have just decided that there's no way that this whole Noah's Ark thing is true because they can't figure out exactly how it could be done. They're like, oh, there's no way this could happen. You know, we barely survive family vacations driving in a car with four or five people for a couple of days. Can you imagine a year-long cataclysmic event that would change the face of the earth forever on a big boat with 16,000 animals, eight people? Uh, it would be impossible. Now, I don't think it's odd to think that there had to be intervention from God to make this whole thing. I think it has to have intervention from God. I mean, you think about it. He already brought the animals to Noah. You know, I remember a coworker of mine saying, you know, if we could explain everything, uh, you know, scientifically, he'd get the whole Bible. He was talking on the phone. He said, yeah, my girlfriend wants me to go to church with her. But until they can explain all these miracles scientifically, I'm not going to go. Uh, the problem is, if we could explain all those miracles scientifically, they wouldn't be miracles, and God wouldn't be who he says he is. So we have to be careful. Now, I want to cover just a couple of questions today, uh, and then we're going to hit a couple more next podcast, and, and who knows, we may go to a third podcast. You never know. Now, the first question I want to cover is people who don't believe in Noah's Ark, uh, they can't believe this is true. They say, well, look, a ship that size wouldn't sail. There's no way it could survive on the water. It's physically impossible. This is an interesting one because the theory is that the ship is too big to survive in the water. However, we have examples of ships coming close to the ark's size being used. Uh, they've talked about, we've read in histories, the largest ship of Serenus, I believe his name was, engaged in a, nav a naval battle. A naval battle. That's awesome. <laughs> engaged in a naval battle. It was in 280 BC. It was powered by 1,600 rowers and estimated that it was 400 to 500 feet long. Now look, the Ark is pushing, is pushing over 500 feet, but this ship was 400 to 500 feet long. So that's getting pretty close. I mean, as far as large ships go, that's pretty close. But it was admired for the large size and exquisite construction. That was 280 BC. Uh, there's another one that uh, it was Demetrius's fleet. It was built around 294 BC. And it talks about how they had a speed and effectiveness which was more remarkable than their great size. Now, look, this was based on the number of oars per tier that they had in the boat. And it was estimated, based off that, that it would have been at least over 400 feet in length. And then Athenius records not just one, but several examples of very large ships. Uh, he even talked about one that was 420 feet long and over 70 feet high. It was built by a guy named Ptolemy, and it was powered by 4,000 rowers. 
That's how big these guys, these ships were because, number one, they wanted the large size, but then you had to have thousands of people to row this ship because it was so huge. Now, here's the kicker. We have all these examples of, of big, large ships being used, and yet everybody says, oh, there's no way Noah's Ark could be built. There's no way that could happen with Noah's Ark. As a matter of fact, there's one that's a little bit more modern. In 1909, they built the Wyoming. This was built uh, by, you know, expert craftsmen. I'm trying to think of the right word. Expert craftsmen. Uh, in fact, you can go to YouTube and you can see Bill Nye in his debate with Ken Ham. I think there's a YouTube video called, I'll put it in on the website, uh, called, you know, Bill Nye Destroys Noah's Ark or something like that. Uh, and so he winds up in the debate telling a whole bunch of mm, half-truths about the Wyoming. You see, uh, Bill Nye tells us, or he tells the audience, uh, that the Wyoming was 430 feet tip to tip, uh, which is coming pretty close to that 500 feet of the Ark. And he goes on to say that the ship's planks uh, in the hole would would twist and they would leak and they couldn't figure out how to fix it. And the ship eventually sank and killed all the people on board. Now, that's all true. That is actually very true. You can go look it up and verify that. However, the part that Bill Nye conveniently leaves out is that the ship hauled thousands of tons of cargo up and down the coast for many years. Yeah, he forgot to mention that the ship hauled heavy cargo and was in service for over 14 years before it sank. Now, I'm sure Nye just happened to forget the 14 years of service. He wouldn't have left that out on purpose to manipulate the audience, right? No, of course not. You know, the truth is, is that the Wyoming was built under a budget. It was built under time constraints. It was for commercial purposes and designed for limited service life. The Ark was designed to float for five months, and that's it. And it wasn't sailing anywhere. It, didn't, it wasn't trying to use the wind to pull them along. It was designed to be a floating fortress to just survive on the water until the water receded and it touched back down on land. You know, not to mention, do you really think that Noah didn't specifically design and build the ark to withstand the kind of punishment he knew that it was going to have to endure? Of course he did. I mean, remember, Noah wasn't a caveman with his knuckles dragging on the ground. You know, we have to keep ourselves from getting caught up in that evolutionary thinking because our concept can be, well, Noah wouldn't have known how to build, build a ship. He wouldn't know how to work with metal. He wouldn't know how to do all this stuff. How could he have built this huge ark? Remember, that evolutionary thinking is the simple to the complex, the amoeba to a man, dumb to smarter. God created Adam perfectly. And it goes downhill from there, <laughs> basically. Uh, so if we go back further, based on you know God creating Adam perfectly, as we go back further, it's not that they didn't have the intelligence or the know-how. They would have used different materials, and they would have known how to do more with less than we do. We have the benefit of a body of work, of experiments and, and uh, uh, projects that we can pull from. They didn't, but they were able to do more with less than we are today. So you think about it, in Genesis 4.22, it says, 
As for Zilla, she also bore Tubal-Cain, an instructor of every craftsman in bronze and iron. Now, wait a second. That means they were already working with all these metals prior to the flood. You think about it. We're in chapter 4. The flood happens in chapter 6, 6 and 7. And then you go on to the Tower of Babel in, 10, in, in 11. So this is prior to the flood. They're already working with metals. I'm pretty sure they had, t they had taken care of woodworking. Okay? So it's not that they were dumb. It's not that their knuckles are dragging. They were intelligent. They were smart. They were able to do these things. I know this goes against everything evolution has taught us about, you know, the Stone Age and the Bronze Age and so forth. But the truth is that there would have been people with the knowledge and the abilities to do this. Now, this brings me to my next question. And I'll try to make it short because I know I'm running long on time. Uh, we'll cover more questions on the next podcast. But the next question is, how did a family of eight people, simple people, build a big, large ship? You know, the idea is normally presented that they wouldn't have had any idea of how to do this. You know, Bill Nye, the science guy, mentions this in the debate, calling Noah an amateur. He, he says it over and over again, talking about the builders of the Wyoming as these expert craftsmen, these builders of ships. And then there's this Noah, this simple amateur, uh, you know, this country bumpkin. Okay, he doesn't say country bumpkin. <laughs> that was my interjection. You know, he talks about him being an amateur. Now, look, I have two questions for Bill. Number one, how does he know he was an amateur? The Bible never tells us what Noah did for a living. What if Noah was a fisherman and he had already been building his boats to go fish in? What if Noah was a shipbuilder himself, you know, or he had been a shipbuilder in the past? Maybe he was a shipbuilder now, or maybe he had moved to this area. Uh, but prior to this, he was on the coast and he was building ships. Maybe he didn't own the company. Maybe he was a laborer there and he's worked, he worked his way up. L look, we don't know what Noah did for a living. You know, many times God uses people that have specific skill sets. It is possible that he chose Noah to do it and that he had no skills at all. And that would be part of the miracle of this. But he could easily have been building those skills in Noah throughout his life to culminate in this ultimate calling. We see this happen today. And the second question I have is, how does he know it was only Noah and his family? Do you really think that skilled shipbuilders wouldn't have helped him if he had paid them? I mean, you think about it today, we can hire people to do things that they may think is crazy, but they'll do it because it's their living. Uh, PureFlix, you guys have heard me talk about PureFlix. Uh, PureFlix have done, has done hundreds of movies. And guess what? Not all the actors are Christians. Not all the crew are Christians. PureFlix finds it a unique way to witness to people by hiring unbelievers to work on their projects. Now, they're always very prayerful about it, making sure that, you know, hey, is this, is this really the actor we want for this part? Is this really what we want to do? But PureFlix hires unbelievers to be able to witness to them. They find that it's a good way to not only get skilled laborers, but to be able to share Christ with people, to share the good news with people. You know, I used to work at a jewelry store, uh, Zell's Jewelers, uh, and 
I remember the jeweler that we were using at that time who would do all of the custom work and everything. He was doing a custom piece for this lady, and it was kind of weird. I'm not going to lie. It was a, a necklace for her, and it was a 14-karat gold ram's head with the big horns and stuff. And the eyes, she made red rubies. Like, it was a little freaky. Like, you were wondering what she was worshipping at night. Like, you just didn't know. I remember he didn't like it. I I was a little freaked out. And But you know what? He did it because that's his living. That That's the service that he provided to people. He didn't have to agree with it. He just had to do the work, the custom work. And so, there's nothing in the Bible that says that no one else helped Noah. You know, these are all just common sense things that we just have to think about for half a second and it starts to make sense. But of course, that doesn't help with Bill Nye's narrative. It doesn't help the atheists convince themselves and others that this has to be impossible. So they don't talk about it. For them, it's just this amateur country bumpkin Noah and his three sons that had to build this massive ark. Impossible! You know, the truth is that when we start to break these things down, we start to break down these questions about the ark, it makes a lot of sense and it all starts to come together. But most people don't think about it. And that's why we need to get out there and help them think about it. Because if they do think about it, they usually think about it in general, just real quick, and they never get past the impossible part, right? So we need to be out there sharing that with them. I'll tell you what, next time we're going to take a look at a few more questions when it comes to Noah's Ark and the global flood. Now, if you'd like to get more information on this subject, though, you can go to ICR's website. Of course, Tim Clary is coming to the conference October 12th, and he's going to be speaking on the global flood and the Ice Age. And so if you want to kind of get more information on this topic prior to the conference, you can always go to ICR's website, hit their web store. Uh, Dr. Clary's talk on the flood is on DVD there. Uh, you can get The Genesis Flood by Henry Morris and John Whitcomb, uh, which is a classic. It's a little bit older. It kind of uh, started started this whole thing. Uh, you can get Searching for Noah's Ark with John Morris, Noah's Ark, a feasibility study by John Woodmorant, which is going to be a book I use when I talk about uh, Noah's Ark in my talk at the conference. So there's a lot of resources, not only at ICR, but of course a lot of the creation ministries. There is a lot of resources out there about the flood. But I want to encourage you to go to icr.org and hit their website and get more information on this topic. Well, I hope you guys enjoy the podcast. I hope you'll come back for next week's podcast. But in the meantime, I'd like to ask you to take a moment to like, subscribe, and review this podcast. Now, why am I asking you this? I know that you guys are busy, and you may be thinking, ah, Dave just wants to think he's good, and he wants he wants to be able to tell people that everybody likes his podcast. Well, I mean, I would like to tell people that you like my podcast, but the point is this. I know you guys are busy, but I'm asking you to do it because the more times the podcast is liked, reviewed, and subscribed to, the more times that podcast platforms will put us in front of new people. There's algorithms that they use. And so every time you like, subscribe, and review the podcast, it actually helps us get out in front of new people. Now, if you've already done that, uh, you know you can continue to share each episode with your family and friends because 
a lot of times it takes two or three times of showing people the podcast or showing people a new product. Hey, check this out. Hey, check this out. Hey, check this out before they'll actually go do it. So continue to share these episodes with your family and friends. We would be so thankful for you to do that as we continue to try and grow the number of listeners that are faithful to this podcast. And there's even more ways that you can partner with us, more projects that are coming up that you can partner with us on. Uh, We'll be talking more about that soon. But until then, I pray that God blesses you with knowledge to know Him and courage to share Him. Thank you for listening to The 624, the weekly podcast of Central Texas Creation Ministries. Join us again next time as we look at creation and the Bible to understand the world around us. To learn more, visit our website at www.centraltexascreation.com.